On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, review recent survey experiences, discuss recent guidance on N95 masks, and in our focus segment, review the final 2021 CMS ASC payment rule, including the newest procedures added, and discuss changes in common ASC procedures. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is brought to you through the generous support of our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Intelair, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, Medicus IT, and BHG Patient Lending. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, all of whom have been carefully screened for the quality of their products and services and their dedication to the ASC industry. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCpodcast.com and please consider them for your center's needs. Happy holidays and welcome to episode 118 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for December 16th, 2020. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, Chief Operating Officer and Owner of AHS. He's recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. So I can't believe that Christmas is next week and, and all the other holidays that everyone celebrates. We're, we're right in the middle of it all. And this is going to be shocking to you, but I actually have most of my Christmas shopping done and it's not even the 24th. So do I. I even have a bunch of stuff wrapped and underneath I the tree. I saw that. The Christmas tree is very uh, very crowded this year, yes. but most of them are labeled for two particular. So as we've mentioned over and over again, <laughs> uh, both Sue and I have become uh, grandparents of uh, little baby girls. And yeah. uh, and. <laughs> I have two grandsons, so they're usually the big recipients. But yeah, um, well, but now you've got a lot of stuff underneath the tree for for Victoria, and John's been having fun shopping. Yeah, for... I've actually, uh, and I've held uh, my granddaughter uh, Josie twice yeah. now, so that's yeah. a that's a big deal, yeah. especially with COVID because so I have to get tested every time I go and mm-hmm. <laughs> see her. But. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's been um, it's been an interesting year. I, I don't know about any everybody else out there, but of course, uh, our Christmas plans are far different than normal. We're, we're used to having big family get-togethers, and that's not yeah. going to happen. And uh, yeah. but we're very uh, we're very happy at uh, mm-hmm. we're coming to the end of this year. We're going to really celebrate on the thirty first. <laughs> uh, no way to avoid that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think somebody said they just want to make sure that. This the 2020 really doesn't. Yeah, they're not staying up to celebrate. <laughs> they're staying up to make sure it leaves. That's right. <laughs> make sure we're done with it. 
<laughs> so as we're recording here on um, the what date is 16th. it? The sixteenth. Yeah. Uh, the vaccine came out on Monday. Yeah. Um, we watched the. I mean, it's funny. It's the, the the first time I've actually seen you know, like pictures of airplanes landing at airports and tractor <laughs> tractor trailer trucks uh, yeah. uh, moving that 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 stuff mm-hmm. out. And the first mm-hmm. uh, the first dose was given out to uh, an employee of a hospital in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Critical care nurse, I think. Right. That's right. So she's probably. Right in the thick of things. Yeah, my daughter, um, I think, uh, who works in a nursing home, is uh, I think she's scheduled to get it tomorrow, if I remember right. I think so. I yeah. knew sometime this week. So we're very so. happy that, but that does bring up, and we'll talk about that in a minute, mm-hmm. um, because uh, there are some ramifications of these vaccines, and uh, I'll just uh, kind of bring out my opinion about it. Um, the final payment rule finally came out, and of course, it came out. At mm-hmm. 7 o'clock in the evening, the night before we did the finance and accounting seminar, yeah. uh, which was uh, two weeks ago. So, uh, unfortunately, that did not give us enough time to go through the payment roll to be able to give our listeners a very uh, comprehensive uh, view of what was in there. So, we are going to hold another conference. Uh, I'll mention it again later, but at least mention it here. It's going to be on uh, December 29th at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Eastern Standard Time. And Christina Benton and I will go into, probably spend about two hours talking about uh, various things in there. So, it'll be a little bit more comprehensive. But we are going to talk about it during the second segment mm-hmm. here. Which will be anywhere near two hours, Sue. Don't worry about that. <laughs> uh, for those of you out there that don't know, uh, Sue yeah. is a nurse. And even though she is slightly interested in finances, her head tends to hit the uh, <laughs> the mm-hmm. the studio's uh, table here. Uh, and when as we get I say, much each depth. time, it's a personal preference. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the nurses out there that might really love That's finances true. and be interested in their yeah. – and they're probably cringing now. That's so. right. Yeah. No, and, and indeed, Nurse we or know, not, I just – well, and numbers we know, haven't been my favorite thing. Yeah, and there is a big need for nurses to learn this mm-hmm. too, and yeah. that's one of the reasons that we both on the podcast and through the virtual conferences have been really working hard, yeah. you know, to increase that knowledge base. Because, like it or not, mm-hmm. you know this. Unfortunately, is um, you're being. Uh, as an industry, nurses are being mm-hmm. uh, dragged in, kicking and screaming because you know we yeah. get it. You want to do patient care; that's what you went mm-hmm. to school for. But there are there are certainly things yeah. that uh, you need to know in order to survive in today's environment. Well, it's like math and chemistry. They were not. I, I loved you know microbiology. I loved biology in school, but all nurses have to be very proficient in math because yeah. you're calculating dosages, and you're um, you know in chemistry you have to have the background. So yeah. You know, there's certain things that that might be my favorite to learn about, but there's other things you just really need to know well, to do your job you, well. You get this, but I used to joke when I was teaching in a nursing program, I taught in a master's program, mm-hmm. and the nurses would come to me as I was showing these formulas, especially when I did some algebraic formulas for math, mm-hmm. and they would say, oh, you know, we're nurses, we don't understand. And I said, well, I'm not going to use the correct word here, but I'll say baloney, uh, <laughs> because if you're if you're giving Please me don't. a shot, yeah. <laughs> you, well, you, and an IV, don't calculate that rate right. <laughs> and that mixture if you're you know counting on your fingers. That's and, exactly and, right. Yeah. I, I mean, and you do algebra in the process of mm-hmm. doing that. It's just that uh, I think I think uh, just like when you put milliliters or whatever in front of me, mm-hmm. I don't think much about it. But you put a dollar sign and I'm all set. <laughs> I think it's the exact opposite with uh, with nurses. Yeah. But uh, but again, not to all those. I mean, there are a lot of nurses really have become quite proficient mm-hmm. in finance now. And of course, we just finished two incredible conferences, which uh, the recordings are available. Just go to ASCPodcast.com. The, uh, we just talked about the ASC mm-hmm. Finance Accounting and Reimbursement uh, Conference or seminar. We're going to hold that twice a year, once in uh, probably June of each year and once again in 
December of each year. So we just did okay. finish the December one uh, on the third and fourth recordings available. It was a great two-day conference. And probably the one that Sue, you and I unexpectedly had fun doing, the credentialing conference. Yeah, and it just became so important all of a sudden. We just started seeing a lot of issues in our centers and, and different places. And we thought, well, what better way to, than to just get out there to a full conference? Because yeah. I think there's such a need. And somehow we just hadn't really realized as much before. But yeah. it was good. It was interesting. I, I think we could have... I think you were saying we could have spent probably two days a week. Well, we could have spent a lot more time even on it. Yeah, and of course, I, being the procrastinator that I am, I, I wrote the, uh, you were there with me where I was writing the slides together. Uh, Sue does all my editing for me because I can't spell or anything uh, with grammar. So Sue does all of that for me. And I was writing those slides, the... Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Sunday before the event yeah. on the Tuesday there. Well, you and know, regulatory a, consultants and spelling, you know, their, head, <laughs> their eyes just glaze over. <laughs> but but um, but I'm writing these slides, and I think I was telling you, I just couldn't, I'd say, how am I going to drag this on for an hour? Yeah. And of course, you know. <laughs> and it just kept coming. It just kept coming. <laughs> and, and then, uh, and I realized too that the audience that we had for the credentialing uh, conference was, mm -hmm. uh, or seminar. I got to get used to the seminar versus conference. Yeah. Conference is a big thing. A seminar is a shorter thing. Um, but but uh, the audience was both, um, you know, real credentialing coordinators I and mean, people that mm -hmm. are really in mm -hmm. the weeds doing, uh, the, you know, the nitty-gritty work as well as the people that supervise them. So that's why we had to go into some more depth. For example, with the credentialing conference <laughs> seminar, we um, I, I talked a little bit more about uh, what the regulations were, whereas most administrators would already know that. Mm -hmm. But uh, but we know that many credentialing coordinators are just kind of thrown into it without yeah. having the context. So yeah. I thought that went off very well. And we did have an episode, I think a couple episodes ago, where we did talk very briefly mm -hmm. um, about credentialing. But if you want more depth, uh, definitely go and look into that uh, that recorded conference, which was on um, uh, which is available at ASCPodcast.com. Yeah. Let's talk about a few things that are going on in the industry. It, uh, fortunately, things are quieting. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that quieting no. down. It really, isn't. It's just that uh, you know there's there's more depth to the, each of the stories that are out there. But fortunately, there aren't a lot of new ones uh, uh, surfacing. So, so the Hospital Without Walls program is not going away. It has been extended. So the Hospital Without Walls program is a is a program that allows surgery centers to temporarily change themselves into a hospital, mm -hmm. um, and and the process is relatively relatively simple to be able to apply for and become a hospital without walls. But as we've talked about on the podcast before, we don't generally as regulatory consultants or certainly on the podcast really recommend this because of the complexities of what you've gotten yourself into. Suddenly, mm -hmm. instead of having to worry about all of those uh Conditions for coverage, which mm -hmm. we all know and love for the surgery centers, now suddenly you're you're required to follow at least some of the rules with the conditions for participation, yeah. which is those rules that govern how a hospital runs. And the whole building situation is different as well, right? It is. You actually use a different form completely mm -hmm. for that. Uh, now, we're not experts at all on it. As a matter of fact, none of our clients have switched over for the concern. The other concern is what happens? How do you get back? Mm -hmm. from it. Um, and uh, and then, so there were some changes which basically, the biggest change was originally when the Hospital Without Pro Wealth program was set up, they, the intention was that you would have 24-7 coverage. That's changed. Now they, okay. they are allowing an exception for that. Yeah. But again, it's available. Uh, if you want more information, uh, just Google Hospital Without Walls program. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of information mm -hmm. up there, but I really wouldn't uh, necessarily recommend it. And I think a lot of centers are really as busy as they can be right now with the limited staffing that they have. And yeah. as long as the government continues to realize that the centers are already taking some of the burden off of the hospitals right. by just doing 
the procedures they're doing, then, you know, I, I think that's yeah. kind of the way to go. And, and we have heard that in uh, a couple states or at least one state we know of, um, ha- and I, I, don't, I won't mention it here because it could change by the time mm-hmm. this uh, episode goes out, but had shut down elective surgery again. And I know here in New York there was a threat at one point uh, to shut it down, but they ended up shutting it down only for the hospital. And I think uh, that's area. what they had said. There was some, some misunderstanding, but, yeah. you know. But I, we're hoping, and certainly there's a big push to uh, avoid shutting down the surgery centers, uh, simply because we learned a, a valuable lesson there. At least we hope everybody's learned a valuable mm-hmm. lesson that there really is no such thing as elective surgery, shall we say. If you're going in for surgery, you you might have elected the day to have it done, but not, not the actual need for mm-hmm. it. Um, let's move on and talk about the vaccine. Again, we mentioned earlier that the vaccine rolled out uh, yeah. on Monday as we record this. Uh, very exciting news for everyone. Uh, on the Sunday before all of those deliveries we made, Sue, you and I were, it seems like 24-7 talking to our staff because we anticipated on Monday morning everybody would be asking about uh, applying to get the mm-hmm. vaccine. So and here's people have been. Yeah. So here's my position on it. Unless you're one of those larger centers or unless you're associated with a hospital, I really don't recommend that you yourself uh, as an ASC go out and uh, acquire the vaccine and give them to your patient or to your employees, or certainly mm-hmm. not to your patients. And the reason for that is that especially uh, one of the two vaccines uh, has a stability problem in mm-hmm. different temperatures. So it has to be maintained yeah. at a very cold temperature uh, until it starts deteriorating. Mm-hmm. So you and, and you have to be very careful about maintaining that, logging it in. I think there's also some legal risks that you take on that you really don't need to take on. Well, I worry about, you know, how are you sure that the staff that you're giving that to, how much of a health check do you have to do? Are there risks that you're not aware of? Um, I believe at least some of them are, are the multi-dose vial, and they probably aren't stable for terribly long. So if you're ordering a few vials, you know, are you going to be able to give it all in the time that's allotted with right. maybe a smaller staff? And, and we certainly don't want to be wasting any of them. Yeah. And and again, I guess we should state that uh, both Sue, you and I tend to be risk adverse. And, mm-hmm. and we as a podcast and we as regulatory consultants yeah. tend to be yeah. risk adverse. So, I mean, if you're willing to take on a little bit mm-hmm. more risk than perhaps we are, uh, then we understand. But even... Yeah, my, we're always just giving our opinion. I, but I think I do want to point out that my daughter who is getting who works in the nursing home mm-hmm. she they're not getting the vaccine themselves they're contracting with a local pharmacy to get it so i think that's probably your best bet is yeah. to try to strike some deal with somebody locally mm-hmm. uh, who uh, you know indicate to them that uh, you know employees are essential yeah. workers and all but it uh, seems so much more efficient too if if some larger areas are giving giving out that vaccine instead of so many different small chunks of doses going out. Right. And then say somebody leaves your center or whatever, are they going to come back and get that second dose? Yeah, that's, um, that's you know, there's just precisely uh, right. Yeah. Things that we we do need to point out too is that if you do uh, and this goes for the flu vaccine as well mm-hmm. as uh, the regular vaccine, if you do uh, administer vaccines in your uh, surgery center. Let's go through a couple things that yeah. we should do. First of all, you have to have a vaccination program. There's a policy that's on storage and handling. It's, yeah, a, it's a newer accreditation standard. Yes. So you'd want to make sure you have that, you know, regarding temperature, um, not keeping it on the door of the refrigerator, yeah. constantly monitoring the refrigerator temperature. That and what kind to of do thing. in case it, do, it does fall outside the yes, range. Yes, call or, or when you have to dispose of it. Yeah. And again, and a lot of times just bringing your um, pharmacy consultant in on any of these questions. Right. Uh, and that's a good point is that if you do decide to acquire the vaccine, you should bring your consultant uh, mm-hmm. in, involved in, uh, into that process yeah. to assist you in there. So 
And then in the December issue of Outpatient Surgery Magazine, they had a lot of great ideas. Uh, do you want to mention a couple of them? And again, our friends yeah. over at uh, outpatientsurgery.net is their uh, their uh, address. So go ahead. Yeah, they always have a lot of good and, and a lot of really in-depth articles. But I just picked out some of the, the simple things. They, they have a section of ideas that work. Different centers tell, tell what's worked for them. So there was an article on building a good, effective team. And they stressed giving team members the autonomy and um, the power to take an active leadership role, even in the someplace you wouldn't think of necessarily as leadership. The the sterile processing techs um, can be in, you know, deeply involved in ordering supplies because they know what they need and, and they know what might make their job easier. Nurses um, in the one center, they said they, their nurses rotate through the different areas um, to decrease their monotony. And, and just to allow for more flexibility and, and more understanding of each other's roles. Um, and I love this point that they made. They said, although the final say always falls with the actual leadership, the leadership's job is to support the staff and not to have support staff for themselves. So just always remembering you're there to kind of build up your, your staff and, and let them become invested and, and they'll do a much better job. Yeah, and let, I just want to tag on to that because um, we know that we're having a very difficult time right now mm-hmm. keeping our staff up. Yeah, for so many reasons, people are retiring because they're just done with the industry, or done with nursing, and do- done with being a doctor. In case, in some cases, and then it's difficult to keep staff that are having to stay at home to support their young families. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, you know, through this difficult time when everybody is going to, so a lot of people are going to school virtually. So I think we have to find better ways. Actually, some of the board meetings, uh, Sue, that you and I have uh, been um, uh, moderating, shall we? say a big topic of conversation is how do we recruit how do we retain yeah. how do we keep staff uh, mm-hmm. happy I, I, and you know we had we had an interesting conversation this week where somebody was talking about bonuses and we all know that bonuses are not the only thing people are looking for mm-hmm. you know money is not the only motivation yeah. as a matter of fact there are studies that show that that's not the primary motivation mm-hmm. that people work uh, in most cases and uh, it was an interesting thing because we were you and I were both saying too little money is actually insulting to the staff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there was this conversation, well, let, you know, we don't have a lot of money this year. Let's just give them a $100 bonus. And given that their bonuses in the past had been significantly more, you know, 10 times yeah. that amount, yeah. um, the, the administration just said to the board, if you're going to do that, don't bother at all. Yeah. Because frankly, that's going to be you know, like an insult. It's actually worse than mm-hmm. giving them nothing at all. You could explain to them, you know, if you're giving them nothing, that this has been a bad year. We'll make up yeah. for it later on yeah. when the finances get better, but um, and uh, interesting. And find some thing. other ways to reward them too. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And, and so I think you're right. And, and one one th- just quick story. When I was running, uh, actually both of the surgery centers that I I was the administrator for over the over my career, we we made it a policy that if you were going to be a full time employee. Mm-hmm. You know, because we had a lot of part time and a lot of per diem employees, but if you wanted to move from per diem to part time or part time to to you know full time, you had to take on an additional responsibility mm-hmm. in order to be in a full time position. And so, for example, in the nursing side, that would be if you were a, a, a nurse, yeah. you know, yeah. you would be the infection control coordinator, mm-hmm. or even if it wasn't the infection control coordinator, you could be providing support services mm-hmm. for the infection control coordinator. You know, you'd have an employee health nurse, for example. Uh, we would have one or more people involved in 
um, you know, the quality improvement program, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, reviewing charts. You yeah. know, we know how we have to do, you know, chart reviews on a monthly basis. Uh, educational program, that's probably a big one right there because, mm-hmm. you know, a couple nurses could be involved in that depending yeah. upon the size of your organization where they, you know, they kind of run the uh, the monthly or weekly, uh, mm-hmm. whatever your, your policy is, uh, you know, staff meetings where you go through uh, in-services. Yeah, and I think... The point of this, too, has to be not that you're trying to overload your staff because at a time like this, everybody probably feels like they have so much to do. But letting them feel like like they can have an effect on the overall running of the center. So, you know, some very simple things sometimes can really change the mood in an organization. Um, so one of the other things they had said is to put a do not enter sign on the OR door when, when you're in there. And staff knows, you know, they can enter, but it's just kind of that red sign sort of yeah. stops them from just walking in and out and might make them think, you know, can this wait till a little bit later, or, you know, and, and wait till the the procedure is done. Yeah. And then um, having monthly one-on-one meetings with staff, if you can, or it could be quarterly. You know, a lot of places will do huddles, which is important, too. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes just having that set-aside one-on-one time so they can air any issues that may have come up that they don't want to say in front of other people yeah. or suggestions <laughs> that they're just maybe not comfortable pointing out in front of everyone. So uh, I don't even want to do this next section. So why don't you at least introduce it while I... <laughs> Thanks. Just go scream in the corner. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and we've been talking about the N95s for a while. Um, and I know a lot of centers don't even actually use them. They can't get them or they can't get the fit test or haven't had the fit test or whatever. And let's make but it clear. You do not. You don't need to. You do not. I mean, there's no regulatory requirement for an N95. Mm-hmm. There are recommendations, very strong recommendations yeah. for the use of N95. And so. sometimes staff just really wants them. I probably right. would. I mean, yeah. um, but again, but... Uh, we've said this many times, <laughs> but if you do choose to do that, you have to have a respiratory protection, protection program. program, and you have to make sure they're all fitted. All uh, of your staff tested. that's going to wear one is fit tested with and, the and particular mask right. that you have in your center, <laughs> um, and that they know how to then check the seal when they put it on, all that kind of thing. Um, well, but, but one important point we should point out that mm-hmm. is probably <laughs> later on what you're saying, but let's just get to the one yeah. point very importantly, is that if you are wearing an N95 mask, you have to dispose of it after you take it off. Yes, that, or it is contaminated, right. and I guess there's or when it's contaminated, we we have to um, clarify, I guess. But you know, obviously, if you're some, if if you get any type of liquids, fluids, you know, right. body fluids, blood, whatever, on there, um, which which is by the way why. Uh, N95s, because they're so expensive and because they're so in short, short supply, that's why generally people are not uh, uh, requiring its use. Yeah. But up until recently, what we have said, and again, we have said this ourselves as well as our recommendation, but we're going to talk about this, uh, the new guidance here. Mm-hmm. We've said in the past, well, if you wear a mask over your N95, yeah. that would allow you to use in between procedures. Mm-hmm. However, Sue, go ahead. There is there's <laughs> some concern that um, that might affect the fit of the N95 because, you know, you're wearing this other thing over, so it might compromise um, the security of that. So, because we have a couple things. There's a CDC take on extending the use of N95s, and then Lori spoke to someone at ARN and listened in on a respiratory protection webinar, and they're they're the ones that had said, really, you don't want to wear a face mask over, that they could recommend wearing um, a face shield Right. Over the N95. And, and the reason for that, Sue, was, and this is a point that you've been making, but nobody's listening yes. to you. Yes, <laughs> I know. I said, didn't I say that? But but ARN has a little more clout than I do. 
But go uh, ahead. Well, but, again, your point being. Yeah. So, so they're just, as I said, um, that they're concerned it may compromise that fit. Yeah. Um, because it's pulling against the mass, which pushes that seal. Yeah. Or I mean, they didn't explain exactly, but that's yeah. kind of my thought was that if you're pushing, you know, it might. Yeah, then push it out to the side so maybe there's some air coming well, in. Well, and I, I don't wear a, a N95. I mm-hmm. wear a KN95 regularly, which has somewhat of the same feel. Not quite as yeah. well, and obviously you not as good. But I can feel when I put another mask over it that it, it does uh, misshape yeah. um, the mask. Okay, so, so no I more it. doing that. Pardon? No more doing that. No more doing that. Yeah, yeah. and the KN95s are not as expensive. so That's right. <laughs> it's not as much of a deal. It's easier to, to replace them. Yes. Um so we actually think we're probably going to address this deeper in a future episode or talk we'll more with Lori. Oh, and Sue, um, by the way, uh, uh, Lori and I did talk about doing a two-hour uh, seminar uh, shortly on um, infection control. Okay. No, we're going to – we, we just need to kind of update everybody on the mm-hmm. more recent guidance on it. So I'm sure this will be one thing we'll talk about. So hopefully things, we'll schedule yeah. that in the next couple of weeks. Okay. This is live recording here. You know, Sue learns <laughs> things as we go along. Sorry, Sue. Like, okay. <laughs> Surprise. That sounds good. No, that's a great idea though. Um, and I don't – I'm just skimming through this. So the, what the CDC had basically said, extending through repeated close contact encounters with several different patients, but they are saying um, that this would be more of a hospital thing. Like if you're caring with people with the same illnesses, like everybody has measles and you're going from one to the other, it's it's probably okay to, to wear them through. Anytime you remove the mask, as we've said in the past, it does have to be discarded. If there's any type of contamination, it feels like even from your saliva, it starts getting um, damp has to be changed. Um, and they did say just if it's contaminated with um, nasal secretions, blood, um, bodily fluids. Um, but I guess we're not, I, you know, but from a regulatory standpoint, it seems like you'd have to change them after every procedure. I really so feel very strongly yeah. about this. If you're in a surgical procedure yeah. or a dirty procedure, you don't want cross-contamination between one patient and another. Mm-hmm. Now, we get it, you know, in the pre-op and the post-op area among staff that might yeah. be out in the, uh, uh, in the waiting area. But when it comes to patients that are um, that when you're in the room with the patient, when there's the possibility of very close contact, when mm-hmm. you're manipulate, manipulating the patient, yeah. um, that you really, whatever mask you have on, doesn't matter whether it's N95, a KN95, mm-hmm. or a surgical mask, you need to replace that in between procedures. And that's based upon error and guidance, you know, yeah. at, at its heart. So I haven't heard anything to say that that's different, but, um, but uh, you know, this is a very fluid situation, which mm-hmm. is why, you know, if you're comparing an episode... Yeah. <laughs> Six months ago to what we're yeah. talking about now, yeah. uh, you would hear – actually, I think even two months ago mm-hmm. we talked about it. Uh, so uh, please understand that this is this is why you need to listen to this podcast. Well, my constantly. favorite podcast doctor, <laughs> Z-Dog, MD, yeah. um, he always says it. You know, it's the science. We're following the science. Right, I mean, and right. that's the thing. We're not just flopping around on this, but as new things come out, we try to – Stay up on that. And a lot of this, as we've said all along, you've got to discuss it with your board. You've got to look into it yourselves and make some decisions yeah. on what you're going to do. Well, let's talk about a couple uh, recent experiences. Uh, we've, uh, ha- again, we've been uh, having a lot of surveys lately. Uh, the crediting organizations are trying to get caught up as much as possible. And just a couple pointers. Um, I don't, I can't believe I have to say this, but please don't argue with the surveyors. Mm. I had a recent situation where I was, uh, we, we had a client and, and, uh, I just texted her over and over again. Please don't argue. Please don't argue. Um, it just doesn't generally go over well with the average mm-hmm. surveyor. And I'm speaking mm-hmm. as a surveyor and saying yeah. that, you know, because you're, in, you're, you're literally kind of, um, 
you're questioning their yeah. knowledge base. And uh, if and, you find a thing that if they've asked for something, you couldn't find it. If you then eventually find it, you can bring it to right. them before the end of the survey. But if and you can otherwise, you for, deal with it afterwards. Right. You know, and you can you always get, ask for clarification, mm-hmm. but don't question that. So, and then we had another situation during the same survey uh, where um, they were asking, it says, well, I don't understand what to do. What should I be doing? And the surveyor kind of came back and it actually kind of turned around because a surveyor got even more concerned that they had no That's clue as to what was going yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, and, and the situation here is that the person that they're asking these questions from was not really, you know, doing day-to-day stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to be very careful about who you put in front of the surveyor there. So just to, yeah. just a comment. And again, I'm talking largely about Dean status surveys. I, I will say during a regular accreditation survey, when I'm a surveyor on that, I'm much more um, likely to provide, you know, suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, because I tend to have a little bit more time on a non-deem status survey, and it's a little bit more consultative. Mm-hmm. But on a deem status survey, remember, a surveyor is out there for two purposes. One is that they're doing an accreditation survey, but most importantly is that they're there on behalf of CMS to do a deem status survey for your Medicare certification. So yeah. uh, that's why they really are in a difficult position that they really shouldn't be, can't mm-hmm. be providing advice on what to yeah. do. And they will offer it if they can. Most people are consultative if, if they have... If it's the right thing to do at the time, right? But it's not really up to you to, yeah. And unless you need clarification on what they're looking for, so that you can provide it to them. And again, a comment that I'll make here: just because you passed last time with Mm -hmm. flying colors doesn't mean you're they're not going to find something this time. I'd say this over and over again, and I do need to Mm -hmm. emphasize it again: the the job of a surveyor is tough. There are a lot of things you have to look at, and and we can't look in depth at every single thing, every single survey, Mm -hmm. which means that we focus on things that we have identified as a problem, either through observation or through review of documents. Uh, But when we find an issue, that's when we tend to focus on it, which means Mm -hmm. that there are going to be things that perhaps in one survey uh, weren't found in a previous survey. Yeah. Uh, or so say be it's prepared your, for that. Sorry. Or say it's your credentialing. They happened to get a good few files the last yeah. time and they didn't. So it's... Yeah, and that's that's very true. You know, uh, um, it, it sometimes it depends upon what we pulled as randomly. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, another thing that came up uh, recently, uh, it actually has been coming up quite a bit lately, is that with these deemed status surveys on the life safety side, remember, you need to maintain that documentation of the original construction of your place. In other Mm -hmm. words, all those original approvals forever. I mean, they need to be available for the surveyors every time. Um, And I think our, uh, in one particular case, our client was confused. They didn't understand why the the surveyor was asking for information that they reviewed during a previous survey. Mm -hmm. And his point was, well, we have to look at it every time to make sure it's still available and and that you have it here. So keep those in uh, binders, keep them on the computer. I'm really recommending now that you use the computer as much as possible to save this Easier to find stuff. It is. And, and it's harder to lose it, and especially yeah. if you're backing up that computer on a regular basis. Yeah. And if you if the only survey you've ever had was your opening survey, you know, you, you have to realize that they're going to be looking at different things. They're going to expect you to prove that you've done what you said you would do. And the same, actually, with any subsequent surveys. You know, they, they, they kind of hope for things to be looking better and better all the time. You're not supposed to just stay static right. and just maintain, at least maintain, but... Okay, well, let's take a a short break, and we'll come back, and we'll uh, talk about the uh, CMS 2021 final payment rule. Is your ASC meeting all the infection control requirements in the new normal? 
Let the team of experts at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey help you be prepared for the new normal with a range of resources. Be prepared for the infection control challenges of your ASC. Our resources include our free podcast. We'll be adding content to help keep you apprised of the changes and the requirements for infection control. And of course, the podcast is always free. And the ASC podcast now has the industry's leading education program for infection control coordinators, which we refer to as the ASC Infection Control Coordinator Training 2020. And we'll be updating this every year, but uh, this training is available at the ASCpodcast.com website. This is a recording of the training program to prepare nurses uh, for the role as an infection control prevention coordinator or to improve the skills of uh, coordinators that already have that position in the ASC setting. And it was recorded on April 7, 2020. This is a full-day course focused both on the basic skills necessary to become an infection control coordinator and to build on skills that current coordinators already have. Particular emphasis is placed on the infection control challenges of our current environment and preparing for more rigorous surveys in the near future. After completing the program, attendees will receive a certificate demonstrating that they received the training. The cost of the training is $199.99, and you can get more information about it at the ASCpodcast.com website. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategy now offers uh, ongoing retainer-based infection control oversight, which includes an annual infection control mock survey, or more frequently, if you wish, uh, review and revisions to your infection control program annually and, uh, and as needed, annual competencies for your staff on infection control, and that's done during the mock survey, annual training on infection control, also done during this survey, and that's designed for your staff, assistance in investigations of any infections that you might have, assistance in preparing your annual infection control risk assessment, and, of course, access to all of the AHS infection control resources that our clients have come to rely on. And for more information on our retainers, visit the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies website at ah-strategies.com or call John Gailey at 585-594-1167. Well, as we mentioned in our first segment, the final 2021 CMS ASC payment rule has finally come out. We were expecting it, I guess, November 1st. It didn't come out until December 2nd. So that was just a little behind. Yeah, that's, I think it's the longest it's been behind ever. Yeah. And just a, a little bit of history here, just to remind our, our listeners who are not familiar with this. Uh, uh, every year, the uh, CMS comes out with the what we call the HOPD slash ASC payment rule. And again, the hospital outpatient surgical rule and the ASC payment rule are tied to each other, mm-hmm. as, uh, um, as I will demonstrate. And uh, by the way, there's going to be a, a bunch of downloads that people can uh, do if they go to our website. I'm going to make available of, uh, spreadsheets that I've prepared because you know how much I like spreadsheets, uh, as well as the entire payment rule and the, and all of the attachments that came with it. So uh, uh, go to our website at ASCpodcast.com for the show notes on this one. Can't guarantee that it'll be published the exact same day that the uh, podcast is, but mm. it will be up there shortly thereafter. Yep, and you're going to have a special program on December 29th. We right? are indeed. So Christina Benton and I, because the rule came out uh, less than 12 <laughs> hours or about 12 hours. Poor uh, Christine. <laughs> poor Christine, because she called me up that evening. I mean, I think we were both working on our slides, just not 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 working tweaking, on them, tweaking it was our slides. At the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she calls me up and she was, I, I mean, she doesn't 
get teary-eyed like that, but she was uh, a little flustered. She was a little flustered. <laughs> says, "What am I going to do? What am yeah. I going to do?" And I, I felt so bad for her because her slides really were a lot it. more dependent upon mm-hmm. it than me. What we tend to do is she tends to cover like the the payment roll stuff uh, mm-hmm. during the uh, the uh, the finance conference, and I tend to talk about yeah. the quality reporting. And as we'll talk about in a minute, there were no mm-hmm. quality reporting changes, so yeah. I had like two minutes to talk, and she had three hours. And she had a lot still to say about you know there were still yeah things that that were consistent anyways. But again, to remind everybody, the uh, so these rules come out in their draft form in uh, July of each year, around July 1st. And that was running late, quite a, quite a bit late this year. came out later in July. Uh, and then the final rule comes out after all the comment period on November 1st. And usually it's pretty darn close to November 1st. But this year it was uh, more than a month late, um, but, you know, for obvious reasons with everything mm-hmm. going on. But uh, so we're going to go over some of these things. If you want much more detail, definitely uh, uh, listen to the special program that we're going to have in December. 29th. I don't know, Sue, that I came up with a title for it yet. Um, but uh, go to our website at ASCPodcast.com and uh, there'll be more information about that uh, as to how to sign up for it. Um, so basically, here's what happened. The CMS updated the uh, the OPPS payment rates for hospitals that meet uh, at hospitals and surgery centers that meet certain applicable quality reporting requirements by 2.4%. So the uh, the update was based uh, completely on the hospital uh, market basket increase of 2.4%. And there was no adjustment this time for the multi-factor productivity. So um, so this is using the same methodology that was adopted in, in the final 2019 rule. Again, one thing we uh, – if you listened to our podcast last year, and I'm sure all of you have been listening for years, um, we noted that in 2019, they went from cost of living adjustment, a standard, you know, like urban uh, cost of living adjustment to the hospital uh, market basket, cost of living adjustment. And and the reason for that is the hospital market basket is a lot more in line with the true costs that um, – uh, cost structure of what happens in a surgery center and certainly in healthcare. And in general. Um, in other words, what, what they used to use a COLA adjustment or cost of living adjustment, that was the same as, you know, what you and I buy in groceries, uh, which is very different than the um, the cost that we incur in a surgery center. So, for, you know, fortunately, they recognized that and fixed that problem in 2019. However, we do need to point out, even though they they have this new process in place, it does sunset in 2023, Unless it's acted upon. So it's kind of an experiment right now to see how well it works. Uh, obviously, on, as, on behalf of surgery centers, it's worked very well because the number is higher than what we would have gotten mm-hmm. if we were using the, the, uh, the urban uh, cost of living adjustment. So CMS continued to apply the hospital market basket cost of living adjustment to the final rates. That's how we came up with the 2.4%. And those of you that have been following the podcast know that uh, the projected in the proposed rule was 2.6%. So it's a little bit lower than what uh, was originally projected in the um, preliminary rule. It should be noted that this uh, rate applies to ambulatory surgery centers that have fulfilled the required ASQ, uh, ASCQR or the ASC quality reporting requirements. So if you fail to uh, report the quality reporting requirements, you are are subject to a limitation on the amount of the uh, cost of living adjustment. Okay. And the final rule removed the inpatient only list. So CMS in the 2021 rule made the conclusion that the IPO list is not necessary to identify services that require inpatient care because of the changes in medical practice, including new technologies and innovations. So this isn't immediate, but um, CMS will phase out the IPO list over the next three years, and they'll begin by eliminating about 300 musculoskeletal-related services. 
So uh, this might be a good time, Sue, for you and I to talk a little bit about um, you know conversation we had before we recorded mm-hmm. on the approved procedure list versus a covered procedure list. So there, there's been some terminology confusion. I mean, in the very early years of surgery centers, um, Medicare covered only a certain number of procedures, and there was a presumption that the only procedures that could be done in a surgery center would be those things that Medicare had approved. Over time, the terminology for Medicare-covered procedures has turned to what we call the covered procedure list or the mm-hmm. CPL, and that is indeed the term uh, that's used throughout, the, throughout the, the final regulations here is that there is this list of covered procedures, which uh, means that Medicare covers those procedures and has set a specific rate for them. Mm-hmm. Just because a procedure is not on the covered procedure list doesn't mean that you could potentially do it in a surgery center. But you brought up the uh, you know uh, uh, the the case. Well, does that mean that we can do open heart surgery? Well, I, I guess and not that I think we can. Right, <laughs> but I've had this all started because I did have a client that yeah. that wanted to know. Well, where can I find out if this procedure can be done in a center? And I, it was I hard to answer that not, question. Yeah, yeah I, I don't have a. Specific list to point to, and yeah, um, and and again, sometimes it gets down to the terminology, and we have to make sure that we understand what the client is asking and what the center is asking. Um, is it going to be covered by Medicare? Well, that answer we can give them very simply by looking mm-hmm. at the payment roll that comes out each yeah. year. Can you do that procedure in a surgery center? Well, I guess we can probably figure out that you can't do open heart surgery in a surgery mm-hmm. center because you just wouldn't have the resources to be mm-hmm. able to do that. But admittedly, it's getting tougher. I mean, let's face it; these total joints. Now, I saw a. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before. I saw a total hip replacement, which, of course, one of them is on the uh, the list this year. Um, and I was just absolutely amazed to see it done in a surgery center. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, given my mother had one many years ago and was in the hospital for, you know, a week mm-hmm. afterwards. So, um, you know, so this is an evolving situation. So just to get our terminology correct, what but, we're referring to here is the yeah. covered procedure list of the CPL. Okay. So again, the cover procedure list is uh, a list of the procedures that Medicare covers and has assigned a rate to. Uh, not always a great rate, uh, mm-hmm. but has assigned a rate to. And again, to put it in perspective, an approved procedure list, nowadays that term tends to be the list that we create internally in a surgery center that is allowed in our surgery center. So an approved procedure list or scope of services would be that list that you create in your organization that you know that you have the ability to do those procedures, that you have the equipment to do those procedures. And that's, I mean, it's kind of off topic here, but make sure your approved procedure list actually has procedures on it that you have the equipment and the capability of doing. Yeah. I have surveyed centers. Not just centers. things that you'd like to eventually yeah. do. That's not. Exactly. I, yeah. I, so, again, kind of obvious, mm-hmm. but sometimes, um, we, you know, there are certain things that we just don't look at mm-hmm. uh, on a regular basis. And that unfortunately, that's one of those things that perhaps is uh, you might uh, make sure you do it on an annual basis. Take a look at it. Okay, so um, what are some some of the new procedures that have been added? So uh, eleven new procedures were added, and I can't say that I can pronounce half of these here. <laughs> but uh, let's uh, I'll, I'll give you the CPTs, and again, uh, CPT four codes are a, a trademark, a registered trademark of the uh, American Medical Association. All rights are reserved by them. So here are the uh, HICPICS codes or the CPT four codes for uh, the new ones added. 
The first two rates are O266T and O268T. They're uh, both implant procedures, very high reimbursement, $25,311.58. That is the national rate, by the way. You would have to adjust that for your regional factors. Uh, The hospital rate, interestingly, here is uh, $29,444.52. This is one of those uh, rates that uh, the implant makes up a substantial portion of the uh, reimbursement there. So that's why the two rates are relatively close. In most cases, you'll find that the uh, uh, HOPD rate is considerably higher than the surgery center rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, 0404T is a transcervical uterine fibroid ablation. That came in at $2,801.08 uh, versus the hospital rate of $6,794.31. So keep in mind that the numbers or the percentage of the ASC rate versus the HOPD rate does vary depending upon the procedure, but they do tend to be quite a bit less. And then there's 21365, which is a, a Malar fixation, uh, $2,399.13. Now, probably the most exciting thing that was added is uh, 27130, which is a total hip arthroplasty. Uh, that came in at $8,833.04 uh, versus the hospital rate of $12,314.76. So that is uh, obviously a kind of a disappointing uh, payment rate. Um, and this is an argument we've been making all along is that uh, while we might want these things to be on the list, uh, it doesn't necessarily – it isn't necessarily good news for us because it does set the the lower end of the payment rate. And we know that most of the third-party insurance companies do tend to set their rates based upon the Medicare rate, you know, hopefully as a percentage above it. Uh, 27412, auto chondrocyte implant in the knee uh, uh, came in at $2,944.57282, which is a copoplexy, and uh, 57283, another copoplexy, both came in at $2,801. And then uh, one of the uh, laparoscopy with a copoplexy, copoplexy, 57425 came in at $3,813.40. And then there were two C codes, uh, C9764 and C9766. C9764, came, which is a lithotripsy code, came in at $2,167.40. And C9766, another lithotripsy, came in at $4,285.36. So it wasn't a huge expansion this year in the number of cases, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, some good cases that were added to it. I did want to point out some of the percentage increases. Now, we talked about the overall rate increase, Sue, going up at uh, 2.4% for the year. But we need to emphasize over and over again that just because that's the average rate, your uh, mileage may differ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the and as I'm looking at, I have about um, – 25 codes that I pulled out and that I'll make available on the website here. And they range from uh, a rate actually going down uh, to the highest increase, which looked to be about 4.4, I'm sorry, 5.03%. So the one that went down is the uh, 66821, which is the after cataract laser surgery, better known as a YAG procedure. That went down from um, <clears throat> Two hundred fifty-six dollars and fourteen cents in uh, twenty twenty to two hundred and fifty-five dollars. Not a big decrease, only twenty-one cents. But I think that's just a general trend that we're going to see with that particular procedure, which really probably doesn't need to be done in a surgery center. So, looking at some of the uh, some of the other more common procedures, six six nine eight four, which is our favorite. 
cataract surgery uh, has actually increased 3.15%, went up to uh, $1,044.65. So that's a little bit higher than the rate of inflation. So uh, two of the G-codes in the colorectal area uh, in colonoscopy went up uh, 4.4%. Uh, That's the G0105 and the G0121 uh, went up to $403.11. So that's a, that was a pretty sizable increase. The one that went up the highest was uh, rotator cuff uh, surgery, arthroscopy, 29827. That went up uh, 5.03% to $2,944.24. Uh, other things like the regular colonoscopies went up about 3.8%. It's been a pretty good year, actually, for uh, mm -hmm. for uh, colon surgery. So uh, that, that it's about time that they needed some. The cystoscopy went up 3.82. That's uh, 52000. Uh, carpal tunnel surgery, another common one, 64721. Uh, that went up only 1.52%. So that went up less than the, um, uh, than the averages out there. And again, some of those um, regular pain codes, some of the injections like 64483, 64490, 64493, they only went up about 1.81%. Um, and again, I'm going to, and uh, by the way, the BLEF, oh, I didn't catch this until now. Uh, BLEF went up 6.26%. Uh, so that, that is the, large, the highest increase. I kind of missed it up there. So I'm, I'm reading off a list that I'm going to make available to everybody so that they can see what the, uh, the codes were. But uh, overall, not a, not a bad year. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, the ASC quality, uh, Medicare quality reporting requirements uh, to tell you all the major changes that occurred this year. Uh, Sue, can you, uh, can you just start that conversation? Can you, I can uh, handle that. You can handle it from yep, here, so go ahead. Yep. So there weren't any. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't it a great relief um, that uh, no changes to this? But it is important to note that since all of the quality reporting requirements in 2020 uh, were you know put off because of the uh, the pandemic, uh, we fully expected them uh, to require that reporting mm -hmm. to to occur in 2021. Yeah. So all of those things you didn't do in 20. 20, uh, you will have to do in 2021. And we'll yeah. probably talk, we probably should have an episode where we talk about the quality reporting initiatives here. It's a little bit too much. We're already kind of running mm -hmm. a little late here today. But uh, but again, no new, no new uh, initiatives in the quality reporting requirements for 2021. And uh, that's a good thing. So we can kind of take a breather on that. But yeah. Okay. Let's take a short break and we'll come back and uh, talk about some of the things that are coming up uh, in um, in our world here. You're never alone in the ASC industry. Many organizations are eager to provide an opportunity to keep up on all aspects of running an ASC. And in this section, we highlight the upcoming events. Well, unfortunately, um, we don't <laughs> have anything to really alone. report. <laughs> and it's not that you're not alone. It's just that everything is virtual now yes. and it's hard to find it. So, uh, <laughs> again, we put our uh, our request out there for people to uh, send us information if you'd like to have it included on our uh podcast, and we'd love to have that information. Uh, we do uh, <clears throat> want to announce that the ASC Association's Winter Seminar is now a virtual conference. Of course, it's January 11th, 19th, and 25th. This is a very popular seminar, now a virtual event, and provides essential training for ASC billers and encoders. So it's going to be during three afternoons in January, and you'll hear from industry experts as they discuss the coding and billing updates for 2021 and share strategies you can use to maximize your ASC's reimbursements. And again, don't forget about... Um, 
Christina Benton and myself will be presenting uh, a th- about a two, two and a half hour session on December 29th. As we go to press here today, we don't have uh, the information out yet, but uh, if you visit us at ASCPodcast.com, you'll uh, see more information and uh, we'll have a new podcast before that event. Uh, you'll have to sign up for it beforehand. Uh, if you did attend the finance and accounting seminar, it will be free, just so that you know. Uh, don't forget about our administrators boot camp. Uh, prepare for the challenges of ASC administration by participating in the ASC Administrators Boot Camp. It is a, a program that has become so popular, we're already starting to plan uh, another one in July. Uh, this one is almost filled as we speak to you on uh, December 16th. So uh, you better sign up very quickly. Uh, hopefully, we'll still have slots left by the time <laughs> this uh, episode drops. Uh, the boot camp includes a lot of reading materials, virtual private consultations with moi. That would be me. Uh, and and so an intensive four-day virtual conference presented in January 2020, which will be recorded. We already have a couple people uh, that you know are going to miss like one day of it, so it's not a big issue. They can uh, you can still see the whole thing. Uh, we're kind of laughing here because our puppy uh, came into the studio and is licking me as I'm trying to read these notes here, and I'm trying to keep her away from the power cable. Sue, sorry about that. Um, so uh, this is going to be a highly interactive program. I'm talking about the Administrators Boot Camp. Uh, be presented to a limited cohort of students and will be do- done through uh, virtual private meetings. And I just want to remind everyone to consider becoming a patron member of the podcast. It does help support our efforts here, um, keeps our, our equipment new, and we do need a new board, Sue. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a lot going on with the conferences. And there's a lot of new things that we're adding, including uh, discounts. Uh, there is a $300 discount on the uh, Administrators Boot Camp for members of uh, – uh, patron members. So more information about becoming a patron member and all the benefits, go to ASCPodcast.com. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please, as I said, consider becoming a patron at our website at ASCPodcast.com. And please spread the word about the podcast with your friends and your colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode, as it always is, is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is moi, uh, John Gailey. <laughs> Research assistance is provided by my incredible team at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, and Ro- Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intelair. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.